This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate, ready to divest our thinking of all the cares of the previous weekend and concerns for the coming week, focus our attention on the Word of God. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather together to study your word, to worship you, to express our gratitude for all that you have done for us. Father, especially in light of events this last week, as we heard from Ulan in Kyrgyzstan about the persecution there of his arrest, his being thrown in jail and beaten, that we have learned that our freedom is something not to be taken for granted. Father, we continue to pray for him. We pray for his church. We pray for the men in his church that they might be steadfast, that they might not be intimidated by these threats, but they may be able to respond to these threats by continuing to meet and to continue to be a visible manifestation of your impersonal love towards those who oppose them, that they might honor and glorify you in the midst of this persecution. Father, we pray for us that as we study your word this evening that we might be able to focus our attention on your word, that we might be able to do away with the distractions that that easily uh, lead us astray in our minds and we lose track of of the thoughts and of what's being taught. Father, we pray that we might be able to focus on the lesson this evening. Father, above all, we pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us and that we would respond to his teaching and that we would... Apply these things in our own life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday night, I left everyone with a hook. A nice hook from this passage in uh, Revelation 2.11, where it talks about the fact that the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And, of course, as any of us read that as believers, we think, well, of course, as a believer, you're not going to be hurt or harmed by The second death, the second death is the lake of fire. We know that. So why is this promise given? Well, we're going to get to that this evening. It's a fascinating study. But before we get there, we have to review just a minute in verse 10. So look back at Revelation 2.10, and there we're told 
three things. First of all, there is a present active imperative, do not fear. Fear should not ever characterize the mental attitude of the believer. We fear all kinds of things, but especially we fear those things that threaten our security, threaten our own lives, threaten the lives of our children, threaten the lives of our family. And so the Lord Jesus Christ specifically addresses these believers in Smyrna who are about to go through another period of intense persecution because of their stand for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is something that, uh, especially in the guise of what Ulan has gone through, those of you who don't know, uh, email went around this last week explaining this. Ulan was one of Jim Meyer's students. He was a uh, young man who wanted to go in the ministry, came to the pastor's conference in Kazakhstan back in 2000, and then when the uh, former Soviet republics dropped their requirements for uh, visas, it allowed these members of all these former, what I call all the icky stands, you know, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan, all the different former Soviet republics to move between them. So he was able to move from down in Kyrgyzstan up to uh, Ukraine, up to Kiev, and spend two years with Jim there up until uh, about a year ago. Then he went back home, and he probably knows more about the Bible than any other person in that whole country, at least any, uh, any of the natives to that country. There's a number of um, uh, American missionaries there, or some. That's how he was saved about six or seven years ago. And last week, some militia members, they've had a, if you're not up on the news, there has been a, what they call the Velvet Revolution, another one of these uh, allegedly democratic revolutions, although it may be, seem to be taking on other tones, uh, occurred in the last few months. And some of the militia appeared in his church last Sunday morning. And after church, they arrested him and several men in his church, took him to jail, and beat them severely, and then told them that if they continued to preach the gospel, then uh, they would kill their children and their wives. Now, I want you to put yourself in that position and just think about, in the privacy of your own soul, if you were witnessing to somebody and you got arrested and told that, how would you feel about witnessing the next week? And yet that is something that is very real. That kind of persecution is still very real in this world. In fact, recently I read some statistics that over 600,000 Christians lost their lives as a result of direct persecution to Christians worldwide in 2004. So even though we think that persecution is far from us, it really isn't. For many of you, I think that if you were to really take a stand at times against policies in your at the workplace, if you work for certain corporations, you know they have policies there that aren't consistent with Bible doctrine or establishment truth. And if you took a stand, you know you'd lose your job. And this is how the cosmic system works. It's called gradualism. And first there's a little thing, and it's not that big. It's not that important. It's certainly not something we want to lose our job over. And then that they get the foot in the door or the old analogy of the camel's nose under the tent. And then it's a, something else and then something else. Used to use the illustration of the frog in the, in the uh, pot where you put the frog in cold water and you gradually heat the water. And the frog will, uh, because it's a uh, cold-blooded creature, it gradually, before it knows it's going to 
uh, boil to death, it's boiled to death. Whereas if you were to take that frog and drop it in hot water, it would jump out. And so by just gradually turning the temperature up in our culture in many different ways through legislation, through various corporate policies, it becomes less and less comfortable for Christians to operate consistently with their Christianity. I remember when I was a pastor in uh, Irving 15 years ago, there were people in the church who were forced to go through a virtually a New Age training seminar, and they worked for Southwestern Bell. I've talked to others who've been in various other mind control or positive mental attitude type of training sessions that have been mandated by their corporations, and they have to go and sit through 6 or 10 or 15 hours of, of training on these kinds of interpersonal skills is totally based on human viewpoint that is completely contrary to the Word of God. And yet, you know, where do you stop? Where do you make that decision? I think that's between each individual and the Lord. But it's, uh, uh, that's how Satan begins to operate. It's not, with, it does, he doesn't begin with this full bore, uh, hostility and persecution of Christianity. It's just the little gradual things that come along, and then one day you wake up and you ha- you can't wear a cross at the office, you can't wear uh, a cross at school, you can't take your Bible, you can't, if you're at work and you're on your lunch break, you can't read your Bible, things like this uh, happen. So it all relates to the general breakdown and loss of freedom that is experienced more and more in this country. And the response that we have to opposition is usually fear. So the first mandate is to not be afraid. Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. When you take your stand for the truth of God's Word and your right, and it's in a right situation. Now, some people make issues when they shouldn't and make waves when they don't have to. But when it's a situation when it's the right thing to do and you need to take a stand no matter what happens, uh, God's in control. And even if you lose your job or, or uh, whatever the situation may be, perhaps even lose your life or, or be thrown in prison, uh, God is the one who is in control. And the Lord is always in control. In this particular situation, the Lord warns them that there is a coming persecution in the second clause. He says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil personally is going to do it, but it's a recognition that it is Satan, formerly known as Lucifer, who is the head of the cosmic system and is behind, ultimately the one who is behind all opposition to the Word of God and the plan of God. And so when these believers encountered opposition that came, as we studied last time, from two directions, from the uh, Gentile Romans because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord, and from the Jews who were hostile to uh, Christianity, It came from those two directions, and they were in collusion with one another, and they knew that they were going to be uh, thrown into prison. And this is what happened. The devil was working both through the secular system and the religious system of Rome and the religious system of Judaism. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, but it's never without a purpose. That's one thing we can count on as believers, that no matter what happens in our life, it's never random. 
There is a purpose. God uses that. Romans 8.28, the purpose is that we may be tested. That is an opportunity to either apply doctrine or to not apply doctrine. And if we apply doctrine, then spiritual growth takes, takes place. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And then there is the warning, you will, future tense, have tribulation or adversity. I prefer to translate the Greek here, Flipsis as adversity. That way you don't confuse the lowercase tribulation with the seven-year tribulation that occurs at the end of the, uh, following the rapture at the end of the Jewish age, Daniel's 70th week. And then we come to the last imperative, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The last clause of verse 10 and verse 11 deal with the incentive that lies in each one of these letters. This is their challenge, according to our outline. The challenge that the Lord presents every believer, are we going to use these opportunities to prepare us to rule and reign with the Lord in the millennial kingdom? The mandate is based on the Greek verb genomai. And genomai is one of what is called one of two verbs in the Greek that relate to existence. And this word it has the idea of something that comes into being. It's the present passive imperative, second person singular. He, the singular, he addresses the congregation as a single unit. And so he is saying, you be faithful. You, the congregation at Smyrna. You, the church at Smyrna. You be faithful until death. It's a present Imperative. Now, the present imperative in Greek emphasizes ongoing action. It's stressing something that is to be standard operating procedure in the life of the believer, something that is to be a standard character trait. So the idea here is you be faithful. The meaning of ginomai in this context is to that of to coming into a certain state or possessing certain characteristics in the sense of to be or to prove to be or to turn out to be. So it's emphasizing character. Notice the emphasis on Scripture is on character. When you go to Galatians 5:21 and 22 that deal with the uh, fruit of the production of the Spirit, it is character. It's the character of Jesus Christ that God the Holy Spirit is producing in our life. If we walk by means of the Spirit utilizing the Word of God in our life, then the Holy Spirit works in us to produce the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love, joy, uh, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. These are all the production qualities or characteristics that the Holy Spirit is building into our life. Now here the command is to be faithful. And this is the Greek Noun, pistos, with an O-S, not pistis, faith, with an I-S, but pistos, with an O-S, and it has the idea of being dependable, being consistent, or remaining loyal. The emphasis here is consistency in your Christian life, consistency in taking in the Word of God, learning Bible doctrine, and applying Bible doctrine. It's not just random faithfulness. It is faithfulness in your spiritual life, consistency in walking by means of the Spirit, 
consistency in uh, using 1 John 1.9 to make sure that you're in fellowship. It is that sense of de- being dependable in your Christian life and remaining loyal. And that brings in the whole idea that Jesus emphasizes in John chapter 15 of abiding in Christ. So the emphasis here is on the consistent forward momentum in the believer's life. And specifically for them, it is to remain faithful, that is, loyal to the Word and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst of persecution, no matter what the opposition may be, no matter how difficult it may be to apply doctrine and take your stand for the truth of God's Word, even to the point of physical death. That's the context. And so the context for us is that we need to make sure that in our Christian life we're going to stand firm for the truth of God's Word in our life, no matter what the consequences may be. This is especially difficult for young people, because young people have to deal with a lot of peer pressure in junior high, especially high school, on into college. There are those uh, you make friends with, those who seem to be the... the, uh, popular ones in any group, any organization, those that you would like to uh, have their respect because of their own popularity, their, their personalities, and yet if they were to know that you're a Christian, often uh, you wouldn't have their respect. So there are people who, who kind of lean back on their own Christianity just so they don't become popular. And that's one of the t- tests that is unique to that age group from about... Uh, 12 all the way up to about 30, the issue is learning that it, what is important in your life and taking a stand for what's important in your life, even when everybody else is going in another direction, no matter what it may cost you in terms of personal popularity or uh, attractiveness. In this case, it's physical death. Be faithful until death. And the result is, I will give you the crown of life. Now, there's a condition here for receiving the crown of life. And the condition is not being faithful until death. It is being faithful. In some cases, it may be until death. But the point is being faithful to the Word, being faithful to the Lord, in the midst of opposition, antagonism, and adversity. Being faithful to the Lord, and the result is... You win the crown of life. Now, this is just one of several different crowns that will be distributed to believers at the judgment seat of Christ, what is referred to as the Bema seat. The Greek word for judgment seat is Bema seat. This was the raised platform on which the judge, uh, judge's uh, bench sat, where he made his decisions and his evaluations. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are going to be evaluated on the basis of that which is produced under the filling of the Holy Spirit while we are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. All of this production is termed as either gold, silver, or precious stones. On the one hand, 
or wood, hay, and straw on the other hand. And the picture, the metaphor that is used in that passage is that everything that we produce in our life is sort of piled up. We can't tell which is which. We don't know what's gold from, from that which is straw. But the Lord can, and he applies his judicial instrument, which is pictured as fire in that uh, metaphor. And all, of course, all the wood, hay, and straw burns up. That which is produced in the flesh, all the human good, all the morality that is just done in the strength of our own ability is burned up and destroyed. And what survives is the divine good. And that is the basis for reward. And so there are several crowns that are listed in the Scripture, four specifically. So let's just briefly and quickly review the crowns. The first is the crown of righteousness, the crown of righteousness. And this genitive, the of righteousness, should be uh, understood to be the crown based on righteousness. That is experiential righteousness, the experiential growth in the believer's life. The key passage for this is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. The crown doesn't produce righteousness. It's the result of righteousness. So as the believer advances spiritually and produces experiential righteousness under the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, while he's walking by the Holy Spirit, then there is a, an award based on that. 2 Timothy 4.6 reads, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is the Apostle Paul uh, writing just before he died. He knew his death was imminent at the hands of the government of Rome in one of the earlier persecutions under Nero. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown uh, from righteousness, or resulting from righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, that is, the day of the judgment seat of Christ. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, what he means by that is the more real the appearance of Jesus Christ is to you, the more it impacts your day-to-day decisions and priorities in terms of spiritual growth. If you recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ can come tomorrow, and that means day after tomorrow, your spiritual life will be evaluated, that sort of cranks up the motivation a little bit to, to recognize that this is important. But if the Lord isn't going to come back for a thousand years, and we're going to live a full life, it's real easy for us to procrastinate. It's always easier to put off to tomorrow the things we can, and especially in the spiritual realm. And that's what people tend to do is, well, I'll get, I'll get more serious about Bible study after I get out of college, after I get a job, when I have kids, always the next stage in life things are going to be easier. And those of us who have been through a few stages of life know it, it's never going to be easier. You have to make that decision and stick to it no matter what happens, because when you and I die, and it could be at any moment, the Lord could come back at any moment. We, we don't know, and we have to be ready. This last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of things happen in my life that have really driven this home to me in a number of ways, and one of which is just in terms of my own evangelism, my own witnessing to people. 
On April 1st, a friend of mine I had gone to college with, who was a retired military officer, gone back to Iraq as a security contractor, was killed in an ambush outside of Fallujah, 53 years old. As the emails began to circulate regarding that, I was also informed that the man who was the commandant of the ROTC unit that I was in in, in uh, college and who was very uh, influential in all of our lives, and we've all managed to keep in touch and cross paths now and then down through the years, has been, had been diagnosed back around Christmas with lymphoma. He's been coming down to Houston every couple of weeks for cancer treatments. I, I'm not, I think he's saved. I'm not sure if he's saved. And then I found out that another individual who was part of that same ROTC unit back in college is a former Special Forces uh, non-commissioned officer, is back in Baghdad, and he sent an email that was forwarded to me the other day. I guess it was on Thursday. And he was describing some of the ambushes he had been in since he'd been over there since Christmas. He left Houston about a week after I arrived. And I haven't seen him, I don't think, since we were in college. And I wasn't sure if he was safe. So I immediately, now that I had his email address, I immediately fired an email to him and told him, uh, I said, listen, I don't know your spiritual status, but I want to make sure you're saved. Let me explain what that means and what it doesn't mean. And so I gave him about six or seven sentence explanation of the gospel and why it was important and that we were going to put him on the prayer list here at the church and pray for him. And I didn't know how that would be taken. He was rather sowed his wild oats rather frequently and wildly in college. And uh, he emailed back. He said, you know, I just flew a... uh, an RAF uh, transport into uh, Baghdad International Airport this morning, got off the plane. Our convoy was ambushed on the way into Baghdad, and the lead vehicle had uh, was fired upon, and a round went through the engine block. We had the front right tire blown off of our vehicle. Uh, nobody was injured, but when I got here, I started reflecting, come on, Al, that's our mutual friend who had been killed on April the 1st. So I started thinking about Al and all the others who had lost their lives over here who were close friends. And it makes you realize that you can die at any moment. And he said, I really appreciate your uh, sending me the information you sent me and telling me that. I have always believed, even though I'm not very religious, and I really appreciate your prayers. We all need Uh, as many of them as we can get while we're over here. And so we emailed a little more, and I explained a few more things about spiritual principles and how God watches over us and protects us. And uh, so that was good. But, you know, our, our days are numbered. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know how much time anybody has left. And we're going to be evaluated on how well we use the time. And... That's what Paul's getting at here, is those who love his appearing are those who are ready for his coming. You know, there are a lot of Christians who really don't want the Lord showing up tomorrow because they're not ready. Those who are ready love his appearing. You're excited about it. We want the Lord to come. We're ready. And those who are ready are going to, of course, those who are advancing in their spiritual life, and they will be awarded the crown of righteousness. Second crown is the crown of life. 
the crown of life. And this, of course, is mentioned in the passage we're studying right now, and it is given to those who are faithful until death. Once again, it's the same idea of endurance or perseverance. It's also mentioned in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures testing. Notice the similarity of context. In Revelation 2.10, they're to be faithful until death in the midst of adversity, in the midst of testing. That's why they're going through this, in order to be tested. James 1.12, blessed or happy is the man who endures, hupoponase, who perseveres. Uh, under temptation, under testing, for when he has been approved, dakimas, that's the same, that's the noun form of the verb used over in the uh, judgment seat of Christ passage in 1 Corinthians 3. Those who have been approved, uh, will re- for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which his, the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, loving the Lord Jesus Christ comes as a result of passing through the basic doctrine stage. When you're an infant believer, you go through those basic stages, you learn about confession of sin, you learn about walking by the Spirit, at least at a rudimentary level, you learn the difference between walking by the flesh and walking by the Spirit, at least I know that you have. Most Christians don't know that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you remember to listen to the uh, interview on the radio today or last night when uh, uh, Dr. Price and Dr. Ice and I were interviewed. But it really hit me today. I was talking with uh, somebody about that. They'd listened to it, thought it went off pretty well. And I said, you know, the thing that struck me in the interview was the first question the interviewer asked was of Dr. Ice, and she said, what exactly is anti-Sidemism? Now, we laugh and we chuckle because she couldn't even pronounce anti-Semitism. But the sad thing is, here's somebody who's on the radio, who's on a daily or weekly interview show, who's, who's supposed to have some level of, uh, of biblical knowledge and information. She can't even pronounce anti-Semitism. Didn't under, it was obvious in the course of the interview that she didn't understand what many of us take to be very basic, very fundamental things about uh, prophecy and eschatology. And, and the thing is that, that she, she's an accurate representative of the Christian community out there. They are just ignorant. Now, it's real easy to be negative and condemnatory of that, but the reality is that they need to be taught. Now, some of them aren't taught because they're negative, but others aren't taught because they just don't know where to go to get taught. They're looking around, and, and hopefully somebody will stumble across us or hear one of these interviews or something. But the problem is that most people are just basically ignorant. And, and to get anywhere in the Christian life, you have to master those basic spiritual skills of confession, walking by the Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And if you don't get that down, you don't get anywhere. That's the foundation. Those are your fundamental mechanics, is to get through that stage. And when you begin to get there, you begin finally to learn who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what has been accomplished for you on the cross. And that's when you move from just a, a child's love to, a, to more of an adolescent love. And that's what kicks in a little motivation. You're motivated because you, you want to please the Father, because you love the Father. Uh, recent studies have shown that, that uh, teenagers 
that it's, it's been tremendously underplayed that one of the largest influences in a teen's life in terms of staying away from premarital sex or drugs or any other number of problems is parental influence. If there's a good, loving relationship with the parents where there's communication, then the children are motivated to stay away from uh, wrong behavior because it will disappoint their parents. They don't want to do it because they don't want to disappoint their parents. And the same thing is true with believers. When they begin to get that basic doctrine down, they understand the dynamics of pleasing God and what it means to love Him because they're beginning to get some content into that love. And then that, that motivates them to greater advance in the spiritual life. And the reward is a crown of life which the Lord promised to those who love Him. Now, one problem that, um, as we see in history, is adversity. And many people just can't handle adversity. And they think that uh, and often the gospel is just presented in this superficial, uh, transparent, almost sentimental manner today. It's amazing how few people really understand the gospel or can even express the gospel. I'm talking about pastors and evangelists. And they, I remember years ago, several of us were very uh, critical of a track that was produced called, and the, the cover of it was How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. And it was, see, that's such an anthropocentric, that means man-centered, that's such a man-centered, self-centered approach to the gospel is that the reason you want to be saved is so you can have a happy and meaningful life. And yet the reality is that once you're saved and you enter the intensified angelic conflict, it may not be so happy and meaningful in the way you define it before you're saved. You may go through the kind of testing that the believers in Smyrna went through. You may be called upon to take a stand for the gospel and perhaps even lose your life. This is what happened with the apostles. With the exception of the apostle John, all of the other apostles lost their life for the gospel. James uh, was beheaded in Jerusalem in A.D. 44. Philip was cruelly whipped prior to being crucified. Matthew went to went east to Parthian, the Parthian Empire, where he was killed by the sword around A.D. 60. James the Lesser was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and when he hit the ground, they stoned him to death to make sure he was, he was fully dead. Uh, Andrew was crucified on a cross for three days, and yet he witnessed to all those who came to see him. Peter was first beaten unmercifully, and then he was crucified. And since he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified like our Lord, they crucified him upside down. Thomas took the gospel to India, where he was killed by a spear thrust. Jude was crucified in A.D. 72. Uh, Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. Uh, John was condemned to being boiled uh, in oil, though he that sentence was uh, pa- uh, passed and then was changed, and he didn't. He later died after he was being exiled. After being exiled on the island of Patmos, he was the only one who died a natural death. Paul was beheaded by uh, Nero in Rome. Barnabas was stoned to death by Jews in Thessalonica. 
Mark was dragged down the streets of Alexandria by his feet and then burned to death the following day. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. So you see that those who take a stand for the truth of God's Word are not guaranteed what the world considers to be a happy and meaningful life. We're in the midst of the angelic conflict, and it is our witness in that trial of Satan that is so crucial. And this is what we see again and again and again. The concept of what what does it mean that we have a crown of life? Is it just a crown or what? What's this idea of life? It is a crown consisting of a special or additional quality of life in heaven. Now, we all know that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, then when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And you're going to have eternal life in heaven. You won't lose it. There's no chance of losing that. That eternal life is yours. But we also know that the Scriptures not only talk about uh, the eternality or the ongoing aspect of that life, but there appear to be different qualities to that life in heaven related to the awards that we're talking about here, the crown of life specifically. And just one example of how this concept is used is in 1 John 3.15, where John says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, a lot of people say, well, see, he can't be a Christian. No, he wouldn't be his brother if he weren't a Christian. This is talking about one believer to another. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, the Lordship Salvation crowd and the legalists all come along and say, Now, see, this means that if you hate somebody, you're not really a believer. Or if you kill somebody, you're not really a believer. You didn't have that kind of genuine saving faith. That's not what this is saying at all. Because, as I pointed out a second ago, it wouldn't be a brother that is another believer if this person weren't saved. So it presupposes that the person is saved. But they are not letting the real life of Christ that that comes from abiding in Him manifests itself in them because of carnality, because they're operating under the sin nature in what we will refer to a little later as carnal death or uh, operational death. 1 John 3.15. Now that covers the second crown, the crown that consists of life. It's an award of a special capacity and quality of life in heaven that goes beyond simply eternal life in heaven. The third crown is the crown of glory. The crown of glory, and this is a crown that seems to be related to pastor teachers who faithfully study and communicate Bible doctrine to their congregation. This is found in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Therefore, I exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's at the judgment seat of Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
So this is a special award to those pastor teachers who are faithful. Then fourth, there's the winner's crown. This is for the believer who uh, runs the race, runs the race according to the rules, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And as a result of that, he wins the victor's crown. This is for any believer who advances in the spiritual life. Now, there are some who add a fifth crown. And you may have been taught this, a fifth crown. This is based on 1 Thessalonians 2.19. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of, re- crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? See, I don't think that's talking about a, a crown. He's saying your presence is if I were to say to you as my congregation, when I see you in heaven as mature believers standing victorious at the judgment seat of Christ, that's going to be like a crown of joy for me. It's not an additional reward. It's a metaphorical term expressing the joy I'll have at your success when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. So I don't think this is a separate crown. He is simply using that term crown of rejoicing as a metaphor to express his own joy when he sees these believers, his spiritual children, as it were, standing as victorious believers, Nikao believers, at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that brings us down to Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, the first part of it's fairly formulaic. We'll run into it in every one of these letters. We've already studied it in detail in the previous one, so we'll just hit the high points. He who has an ear is a reference to positive volition. Any believer who is ready to listen to the Word of God. He who has an ear, and then we have a command. Let him hear. This is the aorist active imperative of akuo. Now, an aorist imperative is, a, is, a, is an emphasis. It's a punch. It's saying something that is immediately necessary to do. It's expressing a priority. Present imperative is standard operating procedure. Present tense, ongoing. But the aorist tense doesn't mean it shouldn't be ongoing, but it's just punching it. We would use bold-faced type if we were writing it today. He who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says. This is the point for the believer. He is to hear. Now, this isn't simply listening, sitting out there, getting your eardrums vibrated by the sound of my voice. Uh, James talks about don't be a hearer only, but a doer of the Word. And the word doer doesn't mean active in church. It means applying what you hear. Don't just fill your notebooks up with a lot of doctrine. Go home, think about it, meditate on it, get it into your soul, and when you hit tests, apply it. There's too many believers who just learn a lot, but then they never apply it when the test comes. That's where growth comes in. God is not going to be concerned at the Bema seat about how many notes you took in Bible class. God's going to be concerned about how much doctrine got in your soul and got applied. And that's the principle here. He who has an ear, if you think you're positive, let them hear 
with application, listen with immediate application, what the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. So the, under, the, the word churches here is in the plural, indicating all these churches. That we're to learn from all of these uh, messages and apply these principles in our life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then we have the next phrase, he who overcomes. This is the articular participle, the present active participle of nikao. And this is related to the noun nike, meaning victory, and it means the victorious one or the overcomer, the one who is the winner. So this is talking about the winner believer, the believer who advances to spiritual maturity, the one who's a winner at the judgment seat of Christ. So we're, the, the winner believer is now addressed. He who wins, he who has victory, he who overcomes, this is the one who is applying the previous principle, that is, listening to the Word and applying it when those tests come. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, we know we're not going to be in the lake of fire. We're believers, right? You know, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not condemned. John 3.18, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what does this mean? Well, this is fun. I just love this. Not going to be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? To understand this, we have to understand three things. First thing we have to understand is the meaning of the second death. The meaning of the second death. What is the second death? The second thing we have to understand is the doctrine of inheritance. Now, since most of you have been here the last couple of Thursday nights when we have painstakingly gone through the doctrine of inheritance, I am not going to repeat it tonight. If you haven't been here, I, we posted some stuff up on the Internet this last Thursday night. You can download I, At least I hope it's out there. should be by now. Uh, on, on the doctrine of inheritance, the bottom line on inheritance is it means ownership or possession. So I'll just give the summary tonight. We have to understand the doctrine of inheritance. And then third, we have to understand the principle of cleansing from sin. Now, I think everybody here just about understands the principle of cleansing from sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we admit or acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I have developed my understanding of that passage, the emphasis isn't on confession. Now, that's what we do. That's important. That's application. I'm not denying that. But the real emphasis, the key word of that verse is not confession. The key word of that is cleansing. And if you trace that cleansing word, word group, all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, you realize that believers always have a method of cleansing from sin after uh, sin after salvation. There's always a method of cleansing from post-salvation sin, whether you're talking about a, a pre-Mosaic system that operated under the patriarchs, whether you're talking about a system in the Mosaic law, whether you're talking about a system in the church age, or even a system in the future millennial kingdom. There is always a method of cleansing. It's always emphasized. And the critics of 
the use of 1 John 1, 9 for confession, and you've run into them and I've run into them, and they're out there saying, you don't really need to confess your sin every time you sin, do you? That's exhausting. Well, you've forgotten the principle. Believers always have to be cleansed. The psalmist said it, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Okay, all these things come together in understanding this, this passage. Briefly, there's seven kinds of death in the Scripture. I'm just going to list them very rapidly. Spiritual death, this was the original death as a result of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.17, God promised death immediately to Adam when he ate from the fruit of the tree, and when he did, he died spiritually, separation from God. That led to physical death. Physical death isn't mentioned until the end of Genesis chapter 3 from uh, dust you came to dust you will return. That's the first mention of physical death. It's also mentioned in other passages such as Matthew 8.22, 2 Corinthians 5.1-8, through 8, Romans 8.38 and 39. Uh, neither death nor life, that's physical death. Uh, Philippians 1.21. Uh, third, we have sexual death, the inability to... Uh, continue to procreate. Romans 4, 16 to 21. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12 related to Abraham's sexual death. Uh, fourth, production death. This is James 2, 16. A person who has faith but no works, is, faith is dead. It's non-productive. This is production death. Point number five, carnal death. Uh, this is when the believer is out of fellowship, operating on the sin nature. He's producing dead works. Romans 8, 6, and 13. Ephesians 5, 14. 1 Timothy 5, 6. James 1, 15. Revelation 3, 1. Luke 15, 24, and 32. I'm just running through these quickly because we're getting short on time. Positional death, Romans 6, when we are identified with Christ in His death on the cross. At the instant that you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, something happens that you're, that's non-experiential called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. When you're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's positional death. And then seventh, the second death. That's our topic right here. What is the second death? Now, the second death is used, that terminology is only used in four passages in the Scripture. It's only used in four passages. All four are in Revelation. Our verse, Revelation 2, verse 11. uh, 2, verse 11. He who uh, overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And that word, shall not be hurt, is the aorist passive subjunctive of the word adikeo which is an unusual word to use here. Adike, the noun, means unrighteousness or sin. Uh, Adikeo means something that happens to you that is not righteous or it comes to mean that which is damaging or you're suffering a loss. The aorist subjunctive is preceded by a double negative in the Greek. That's the not in the English. We just translate it with a not. But in, in English, it's always bad grammar to have a double negative. The two negatives cancel out each other, and you have a positive. But in Greek, a double negative, u and me, two different words for no, plus a subjunctive mood, mean that something's impossible. It's what we find in Galatians 5.16. Uh, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. Same type of grammatical construction. So he overcomes. It's impossible for him to be harmed or to lose something. That's the idea here, to suffer some kind of loss. 
by the second death. So if you're not an overcomer, the implication is that there is some loss. Well, what's that loss? This is the fun part. The second death is then mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. This is where it's defined. Then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. This is all the unbelieving dead and all those who are in Hades cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So the second death is the eternal punishment of the unsaved in the lake of fire. Well, believers aren't going to go there. So what's all this about? You're right. Believers aren't going to be there. But if you're a failure as a believer... There is a way in which you will suffer loss in relation to the lake of fire. Let's look at this. Revelation 2.6 brings it up. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In this verse we're told that there is a blessing on those who have a part in the first resurrection. Now, what we think of when we read that word part is we think of having a place or having a role. That's the English word. Like, uh, did you get a part in a play? You know, do you have a role? That's not what the Greek means. The Greek uses the word miros. Miros was a highly technical word used in legal documents, especially wills, to indicate the share or portion of an inheritance that somebody received. Now, when you look at this verse and you say, blessed and holy is the person who has an inheritance share in the first resurrection. He who has a portion, an inheritance portion in the first resurrection, it changes your whole concept of this verse. It's only focusing on believers who have re- rewards and inheritance in the judgment, at the judgment seat. And over them the second death has no power. See, this is the same emphasis we have in Revelation 2.11. The second death has no power and there's no loss to the believer who is a winner. And those are the ones who are going to be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. But see, those who are failures at the judgment seat of Christ, those who just waste their time here on earth, those who don't advance, develop no spiritual capacity for leadership and responsibility in the kingdom, and just waste their time here, they enter the kingdom, as we've studied some on uh, Thursday night in Hebrews, they enter the kingdom, but they don't possess the kingdom. There's no ownership responsibility. There's no inheritance they're, they're, they're like the stranger, the foreigner that lived in the land of Israel in the Old Testament. There's no inher- they're, they're, they, they lived in the land, they enjoyed the blessings and privileges in the land, but they didn't have ownership responsibility. And then the next time we have this kind of terminology used is in Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, this sounds like if you commit these sins, you're going to end up in the lake of fire, which is how lordship salvation people take the passage. And you have parallels to this. In 1 Corinthians 6, you have a similar list, and it says those who commit these sins will, have no inher- will not inherit the kingdom. 
You have the same thing in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. You have the list of the works of the flesh. And the conclusion is those who commit these deeds will not inherit the kingdom. The problem is that people want to interpret inheriting the kingdom as entering the kingdom. But inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean to enter the kingdom. That's eternal life. It means to have ownership, possession, have privilege and rewards in that kingdom. Now, if we look at the context of Revelation 21.8, it opens it up for us. This is an inheritance issue, not a salvation issue. Once again, we have the same word here, meros. That's part of the reason you can say it's an inheritance issue. All of those who commit these sins... What happens? Their part, that is, their inheritance, is in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Just to cut to the chase, what this is saying is the the believer who doesn't get his rewards at the judgment seat of Christ is going to see his his, his rewards flushed into the lake of fire. That's why he suffers loss. They're going to be flushed. He's going to see what he could have received. But because of failure, he, he does not receive those rewards, and they will be flushed into the lake of fire. Let's look at the context. Back in verse 4, we're told, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is in the new heavens and new earth. This is after the great white throne judgment. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So he's addressing John, tells him to write these things down. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. Then this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. That's salvation. I will give to, of the fountain of the water of life freely to the one who thirsts. Salvation is free to anyone who wants it. Verse 7, he who overcomes, see, that moves to the next level. This is a category of believer. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Notice it's still talking about overcomers, just like in the letters to the seven churches. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, notice the contrast. The contrast but in verse 8 contrasts the one who overcomes and inherits with the one who is in consistent carnality. See, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about inheritance, rewards. And the one who consistently lives in carnality, they forfeit their spiritual rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And these will be destroyed in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which in the second death. Now, the question always comes up, well, how do you know... How do you know when you're producing works of the flesh that's wood, hay, and straw and works of the spirit that's gold, silver, and precious stones? Because you understand the principle of cleansing. That's why I said that's the key word in 1 John 1, 9. And where do we get the classic illustration? I don't have time to exegete the whole thing tonight. We'll come back and do this again from a different angle when, uh, after the, the conference next week. But the cleansing takes place through confession. 
The illustration is the night before Jesus went to the cross in John 13. John chapter 13, Jesus comes in, he takes off his, his outer garments and wraps his, a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And what happens? We know the story. Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. That's the role of a lowly servant. I need to wash your feet. Don't touch me. And the Lord says, you know, everybody here is, he says to Peter, verse 8, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Guess what word is there? Meros. If I don't cleanse you, because the word here for wash is not the word luo, which means a complete bath. That happened at salvation. It's the word nipto, which means a partial cleansing. See, these are the same two words used in the Old Testament. When a priest was ordained as a priest, when the high priest was ordained, they're washed from head to toe, which is a symbol of the total cleansing that occurs at salvation. And the word that, they, that the Jews used when they translated that from the Hebrew to the Greek and the Septuagint was luo, a complete washing. But when the priest entered into the temple and he came to the, to the laver and he had to wash, every time he came in he had to wash his hands and he had to wash his feet. Why? Because it's a picture of confession. There had to be the cleansing from any sin that had been committed since the last time he was in there. He had to wash his hands. There had to be cleansing from what he did and where he went. It's a picture of confession of sin. And so after John 13:8, Peter says, Oh, then, Lord, if you need to wash me, we'll just wash my whole body. And he uses the word luo. And Jesus says, I don't need to wash your whole body. You have all been cleansed except one of you, Judas Iscariot. You have all been cleansed totally, that cleansing that comes at salvation, but you only need to be washed. And why do you need to be washed? Because if you're not cleansed on a regular basis from committing sin so that you're back in fellowship and recover the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit, you can't produce divine good. And if you can't produce divine good, you can't have inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. And you don't have inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ, it's all going to burn up, and then it's going to get you know, flushed into the lake. All your rewards, or potential rewards, contingent rewards, will get flushed into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. That's why overcomers are promised in Revelation 2.11 that for the overcomer, they're not going to be harmed or suffer loss at the second death. But for the, the implication is for the believer who loses out at the great white, I mean at the judgment seat of Christ, for the believer who has just wood, hay, and straw, what happens is he does suffer loss. He doesn't lose his salvation. That's clear. He enters heaven, yet is through fire. But he loses his potential rewards, and they get flushed into the lake of fire. That's the message of Revelation 2.11. Next time I want to fill that out, there's some other interesting things to do with a couple of those passages I just skimmed over in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 related to inheritance. So I want to come back and go over this again, and we'll tie those loose ends together before we get into the uh, next letter, which is the letter to the church of Pergamum. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by these things, to recognize how precious this time is. And as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, just before he challenges us to be filled with the Spirit, he said, redeem the time. Redeem the time. We need to recognize that we only have a finite amount of days on this earth and a finite amount of time to grow to spiritual maturity and to glorify you. And we pray that you would just uh, uh, challenge us with all these truths that we're studying to press on to spiritual maturity and not to become complacent. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. It's not based on works. It's not based on obedience or disobedience. It's not based on anything other than simple faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge any unbelievers here with the truth of your word and that you would challenge the rest rest of us with the need to press on to spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.